this past January, um, a meteorologist, a guy named Adam Klotz, uh, was in New York City. He watched the uh, Giants playoff game against the Eagles. Maybe you watched it too. It was a brutal loss. And uh, he watched that, and then he went to the subway station, made his way to the subway station to head home. And it was there on the way that he crossed paths with a group of teens. Uh, They were harassing an older man on the street. They were actually lighting his hair on fire. So he stepped into the scene. He said, hey, guys, cut that out. And they did, but they redirected their efforts towards him. And Adam was bum-rushed. He was beat to the ground. He was kicked repeatedly. And afterwards, he made a statement, and he said this. He said, I got really beat down, and no one else spoke up. A lot of people just watched. They were quick to help me after the beatdown was over, but no one wanted to step in and stop me from getting stomped on. Uh, Psychologists have a name for that. They call it the bystander effect. Uh, The idea is that the greater the number of people present in a crisis situation, the less likely it is that someone is actually going to step in and help out kind of crazy. Uh, we, we oftentimes just assume someone else is going to do it. Someone else will step in and help out, and in the end, uh, no one ends up doing anything. And um, it's not a new idea. It's been going on ever since the, the beginning of time, actually. You can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fall. Uh, maybe you know the story, and maybe you happen to remember, where was Adam when Eve was being tempted by the serpent to eat that forbidden fruit. Yeah, he was, he was right there on the scene, standing next to her. But do you remember what he was doing? Nothing. He is the original bystander, standing by, uh, doing nothing. And the problem is what we call passivity. And that's the problem that the passage we're looking at this morning was was written to address. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we're in the fifth week of a series called Growing Pains. We're making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers to help them mature, to help them grow in their walk with the Lord. And uh, what we're going to see here is that growing up means going from passive to active. That Instead of sitting back and watching situations spiral, it steps in. It steps into the fray and applies appropriate redemptive action as needed. So um, I'm going to just read about this scene, this issue uh, that wasn't getting addressed in the church in Corinth. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is section of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So so that's the situation. This is the situation no no one wanted to deal with. It's it's an out-of-bounds sexual relationship. A, A man who belonged to their church was engaged in an ongoing incestuous relationship with his stepmom. And... And the point's made here that 
Like, this wasn't just problem behavior for, you know, those narrow-minded, God-fearing Jesus types of people who always have a problem with everything, right? This is a whole different category. Even the hippies, even the hardcore pagans hear about this, and they're sickened. This is shocking behavior. And and yet, as, as disturbing as the issue in itself is, it's the church's response that's being taken to task here in this passage because instead of confronting it, they, they celebrated it. It says, this is happening and you guys are arrogant. The, the Greek word is, is, is literally inflated or, or puffed up. For, for whatever reason, they saw what was happening as something to take pride in, something to celebrate. And we could only speculate what the reason for that might be. Uh, maybe it was because the individual in question was an influential guy in the church. Uh, maybe he was a likable guy. He had a charismatic personality and you just wanted to like him. Uh, maybe he was a, a man of means and, and they knew that if they challenged him, it was going to hit them in their wallets. It likely had something to do with a distorted understanding of grace which is not an uncommon thing. That's, that's when you hear about grace and you think it means what you do and how you live doesn't matter. So go ahead, do whatever you want because it's really not that big a deal. Everything is permissible after all. You know, Paul even says that later on in this letter. Um, or maybe it was just that this was just too uncomfortable to deal with. It was pushing them too far out of their comfort zones, and they just didn't want to go there. So they ignored it. Whatever it was, uh, the appropriate response, according to what this passage says, was for them to have grieved what was going on. I find that fascinating. Ought you not rather to mourn? That's the question Paul asks. And that, that, was, that was the step they, they skipped They didn't let the raw reality of the situation filter through their lives at a deep emotional level because that would have taken them out of bystander mode. They would have have moved them into action because the reality is that like a train wreck was happening in front of them, but they didn't mourn it. They didn't let it break their hearts. And, 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 And it makes me wonder in my own life, what are... What are the situations going on around me that, I, that need to be mourned, that need to be grieved? Could, could failure to grieve be a reason we bystand and stay on the sidelines? We, I think we tend to grieve only when absolutely necessary by nature, right? And it's understandable. There's nothing fun about grieving. It's it's that heartbreak you feel when you're faced with the reality of loss, when, when a person dies, or maybe when a loved one runs away, tears flow, the heart breaks, and, and sadness sets in, and it's, it's a devastating emotion. It's crushing. But what we see here is that there are times when it's entirely appropriate to respond that way. All losses need to be grieved. If we don't grieve we start losing touch with reality. And, and, and this church in Corinth, they lost touch with reality. They, they minimized the tragedy instead of mourning it. 
So let's take care not to let that happen in our own lives. You know, I, I've noticed a tendency in myself when someone's talking to me about something, there's something in me that wants to utter these two words. It's okay. It's okay. I, I want to cut and paste those two words onto every situation. But I'm coming to understand that there's times when there's nothing okay about something that's going on. There's actually times when it's okay, it's a defense mechanism that's setting in in me that, that wants to bypass something tragic. And I just want to make someone feel better or I want to make myself feel better. See, there's no way to respond redemptively to a situation until we're actually dealing in reality. And the reality that we're all living in is that we are redeemed people by the grace of God, but we're still living in a broken down world. And a lot of things are happening that ought not to happen. And so make space in your life to grieve, to grieve the losses, not just the physical losses, but the broken realities that are going on around us. Loving, redemptive action is fueled by a broken heart. All right, so let's keep reading, and we're going to see how Paul handles this situation that no one wanted to touch in this church. He says this, Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Stop there. All right, just to let you know up front, this is going to take a little bit of time to unpack this one. There's a lot going on here. And uh, this is what happens when you go through a book of the Bible and you start preaching it. You, you get to places like this where you don't choose the things that you want to talk about. Uh, here we are. So we're going to unpack it. And I want to start with the overriding principle first, and then we're going to work our way into the specifics of the situation. But, but here's the principle. It's basically this. Friends don't let friends drive their lives off of cliffs, right? You, you get that, right? That, that maturity is understanding that, that God connects us together in community to, to be redemptively present in each other's lives, to come alongside, to bring out the best in each other, to keep each other from veering off course. And, and there's times when that includes applying intentional redemptive pressure, if and when that's needed. So in other words, maturity is willing to be a bother and it's willing to be bothered, right? It's on the giving end and the receiving end. So mind your own business Unfortunately, it's just not a, it's not a phrase you find in the Bible. It doesn't show up. We, we are our brother's keeper. We're, we're in this thing together. We need each other. And that's not to imply that we don't respect each other, that we don't set up healthy boundaries. It just simply means that God doesn't call us to sit back and bystand when we see someone else's life blow up. 
We're called to step in and, and, and to be a bother. And so, so for me, if, if my life starts showing signs of compromise, if I am moving towards the borderline in whatever area it may be, I've got guys in my life. There are guys in this church who love me enough that I know they're going to step in and stop me. They're going to speak God's truth. They're going to do everything they can do to steer me straight and get me back on track. And it's an incredible blessing to have people who will be a bother in my life, who are willing to be a bother. They're, they're a blessed bother. And I hope, I hope you can say that about yourself. I hope you have friends who don't just sit back and put up with your crap, right? We, we just don't need that. We all need friends who call us out on it who are willing to do whatever it takes to keep us on track and point us to Christ. And what we see here is that it goes beyond like the boundaries of convention. It goes beyond just, hey, whatever you decide, just know that I'm here for you, right? That's the, that's the thing we often hear. But sometimes it may even mean not being there for someone. It could. How many of you have figured out that when you ignore a health issue, it tends not to go away on its own, right? Usually, they get worse. So generally speaking, the earlier you address an issue, the less intensive the intervention has to be. And the more you delay, the more invasive the intervention usually ends up being. So Diane and I, uh, we both belong to the Pale White Skin Club, uh, neither of us tan. Uh, we toast. Uh, any of you in that club with us? Yeah, yeah. Diana always says that in heaven she's ordered her glorified body. It is going to be golden brown, and she's looking forward to having that one day. For, but for right now, we are both, and she especially, she's kind of at a high risk for skin cancer. She gets regular checkups with the dermatologist. She's She's been under the knife a few times already. And so when she's looking in the mirror and she sees a spot on her head and it looks kind of a little irregular, here's what she doesn't do. She doesn't comb her hair over it and and pretend it's not there and then wish it away, right? She makes an appointment immediately because the, the quicker the response, the less intrusive the intervention required. That's the principle. And in this case, what we're looking at in this passage, this is like a stage four spiritual cancer that's been neglected for way too long. It could have gone differently had it been dealt with at an earlier stage. But at this point, drastic action is necessary. And so that's what Paul does. He exercises his apostolic authority. He does it in this, what I think is just kind of an unprecedented way. It's It's in a way that I'm not even sure is is meant to be repeated or it can be repeated. But the point here is to to take radical redemptive action when and if that's what's warranted. And so the tendency that I've seen in churches um, is to swing one of two ways when it comes to passages like this, either to apply it all the time or, or not at all. So in some churches, the moment 
someone sees something in someone else that just smells like it might be a little out of line, they start throwing out the D word. You know, we got to discipline that brother. We got to disfellowship that guy. We're serious about this kind of stuff at this church. Um, You know, when all you have is a hammer, right, they say everything starts looking like a nail. And when that's the case, church turns into a very unsafe place to be in process. And the truth is, we are all people in process, aren't we, right? We have not arrived. And when that's not safe to be a person in process, the people end up hiding, they end up pretending. And that misses the point that what we're seeing here, this is not the first step. This is the final step, right? This is where they're at. Is a, it's, this is a last resort. So prior to this point, there were so many opportunities that were missed to just to speak into, to come alongside, to teach, to correct, to encourage, to plead, and to warn. But that's past. So there's also the opposite error, though, and I think this is probably the one most of us would likely struggle with, and that would be to apply this passage in any way at all. Right? We're we're more likely to respond when we see things going sideways in someone's life and just say, well, what can I really do? It's their decision. This is two consenting adults, and, and I may not agree with their choice and their lifestyle, but it's, it's their decision. It's not up to me. So I'm just going to pray for them, and I'm going to be there to love on them. So I'm going to press a little bit this morning. I'm going to press into what is here in this passage, and, and I want to warn you, it may ruffle your feathers just a little bit, but if it does, please know I ruffle in love, okay? Just know that up front. Um, see, this is, this is challenging Christian community, churches, to love each other, to not be there for someone, to be able to say no matter what you do, I'll always love you, but that may not mean I'm always going to be here for you. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge for us to be willing to go there with, especially when it comes to people we love, right? Some, some call it tough love. I think for the believer, it's a matter of addressing temporary issues through the lens of ultimate realities, So Paul's ultimate concern as he is giving these instructions is is what he says it in verse 5. He says that this person's spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. That's that's what matters. That's ultimately all that matters. What doesn't matter is is how he responds or or whether he says he hates me or or if he throws a temper tantrum or calls me names or says he's never going to speak to me again. All of that pales in comparison to this question of where is this person going to spend eternity? There's an eternal issue at stake here. So so here's a question. Think this one through. Where do you go to find assurance of your salvation? Now, let me clarify. I'm not asking how you have salvation, right? I hope we're crystal clear on that, and if we're not, this is a great opportunity to tell you that we are saved. The gospel says through grace, 
um, by grace, through faith, in the finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, not by works, lest any of us would boast. Amen. Finished work of Jesus. That's not the question. The question is, as we're living out our lives for Christ, where do we go to turn to find assurance of our salvation? So I'll tell you, first of all, what the answer isn't. We don't turn to, well, when I was six years old, I prayed a prayer, right? Or, you know what? I raised my hand when the pastor extended an invitation, or I walked up an aisle and responded to an altar call, or, or I was baptized, or, or I went to church a lot, or I did anointed ministry, and the Holy Spirit did amazing things through me. None of that is where assurance is found. The answer is that assurance is found in a growing Christ-like life. There, there is no substitute for a life that's just taking steps forward, growing in godliness. They're baby steps for all of us, right? Not usually gigantic steps. Um, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about forward progress. Even at the most incremental level is where assurance is found. Um, and so what's going on in this passage is that there's just outright brazen iniquity. So this guy, he's basically, he is driving his life in the polar opposite direction of Christ-likeness, of everything God wants for him. And so, first of all, you say, that's not okay, right? That is not okay. And if that is the case, after all this time, and he doesn't care about it, he's not willing to address it, he's unresponsive, he doesn't want to change, Paul says this, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so all the commentaries I read this past week, they all agree that this isn't some kind of spell or incantation, right? Um, What it's basically saying is that the most loving thing you could do is tell him that he's, he's not welcome here at the church anymore. And the point of that is not to punish, it's to provide the opportunity for a wake-up call in hopes that he would come to his senses. And if he's saved, he will, he'll turn around. And, and if he's fooled himself and he thinks he's saved, but his life hasn't changed, this could be actually what it takes to lead him to saving faith in Christ. Take away that blessing of belonging to a spiritual, a faith family. Let him him have a temporary taste of the eternal consequences of his actions because the wages of sin is death and and we see even in in the Garden of Eden and in the fall that that, that, that's about isolation. That's about alienation. Um, And so the hope is that if he gets maybe just a a temporary taste of hell, that that would wake him up. He'd come to his senses. He's turned things around because as harsh as a temporary taste of hell is, it's still a whole lot more preferable than an eternal taste of it. All right, so let me tell you, this is, this is a drastic action move, right? And, and like I said, this is, this is like the court of last resorts, it's not the first, second, third, fourth, or even twelfth step taken. And it's a place we rarely get to. But the point is to just apply radical action 
when that's what's required. And just kind of think about the headlines over the past 10 years as it relates to the church, the number of scandals, sexual scandals, and children being abused, and all of these horrible headlines over the past too many over too long a time. You just kind of look at this and say, how many of those stories would have gone differently had this principle been applied? And so maybe it sounds harsh, maybe it sounds over the top, but maybe it's not when that's what's warranted in this situation. And maybe it's not over the top, especially when we stop and see uh, how much is actually at stake. There's more here at stake than just the individual doing a certain thing. And, uh, and so Paul talks about that. He says, as the passage continues, he says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so to get back to this idea of bystanding, the the impact of bystanding um, that it has, it goes way beyond just one person doing something that's out of bounds. Uh, When issues get left unaddressed, they they just don't stay contained. They, they spread like an infection. They, they spread throughout the entire church body. And it's compared here to the way yeast works through a loaf of bread. I, I don't do a lot of baking, so I can't speak any kind of definitive manner about that. But if you just take a pinch of yeast and you add it to the dough and the flour, it spreads throughout the whole thing, makes the whole loaf rise up. And so... By the same regard, the message that bystanding sends is that, I guess that's okay. Someone sees what's going on, no one's addressing it, it must not be that big a deal. No one's stepping in to do anything about it. And so what that has to mean is that whatever, whatever it is that's in front of my life that I'm kind of wrestling through this compromise in front of me, I guess I don't have to wrestle too hard with that either, right? If it's okay for them, then it must be be okay for me too. So just, just prior to that defining moment when God parted the Red Sea and rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, he, he told them to eat unleavened bread, basically like matzah bread, bread without the yeast, bread that didn't rise, bread missing that one ingredient as a teaching tool so they would never forget not only what they'd been saved from, but what they'd been saved to. And so every Passover, right, the the Jewish people will eat this to remember that God's people were saved to be different, to be free from the leaven, free from the sin that contaminated the rest of the nations. And so here, Paul's explaining, that's what Jesus came and gave up his life on the cross as the spotless Passover lamb to save you for that same purpose, to be a holy nation, to be a chosen people, to be a people set apart for God's holy purposes. And the challenge is that when sin starts setting in to God's people on a corporate level, 
it threatens the entire mission, the entire purpose for which God created his church. Paul finishes with this. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Harsh words again, we're working through it, but um, here's the thing. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to many of the conversations I have with, with many of you, actually, the biggest threat to the Christian church It's not them out there, right? It's never persecution from the outside. The biggest threat is always an ever compromise on the inside. And so Paul makes the point, like, you know, when the hippies and the pagans, they're out doing their thing, they're living a godless lifestyle, so what? What do you expect Why in the world would you expect them to act any different way? That's par for the course. Leave them be. Stop paying attention to that. Pay attention to what's happening inside God's house. Or maybe we say, protect this house. This is where our focus is is to be. That, that, That means no bystanding and no compromising. And he also makes the point that, don't miss that, he's not just talking about these extreme sexual deviancy misbehavior issues. He's saying apply the same principle to issues we wrestle through and work through every day. Take that same zero zero tolerance attitude towards issues like greed and idolatry and abuse and drunkenness and, and cheating. Don't make any space for them. Now, I need to stop and say, please don't misunderstand because this often happens at times like this. If you're struggling with a sin issue, this is a place for you. There are people here who can come alongside and walk you through that together with you. And I'll add to that, if you are stuck in a sin issue and you just you want to get out, but you don't know how to. You're just stuck in it. This is also a place for you. You are welcome here. We worship a God who sets people free, and we are committed to seeing that happen, finding freedom. What this is talking is about just this kind of settled commitment with a sin issue. This is just going to be my life. This is just who I am. I have no interest, no intentions of changing. And the reality is that's just, that's just completely incompatible with, with what this place, this community is, is all about. And so, and so struggle is okay. Stuck is okay. Settled, it's not okay. And I guess the question would be, why would you even want to be at a place like this? If your life is 
about the exact opposite. The, the last line says, I guess it's the strongest, right? Purge the evil person from among you. Strong words, and I think what that really is is that's just the unfortunate outcome, the end product of what happens from continual neglect over the long course of time on an individual level when we don't purge the evil that's in us, in our lives, and just let it settle in and, and just allow it to go on for a long period of time, it gets to that point. So the better way to deal with it is, is up front. And what I see here is that, uh, you know, this is, this is a corporate charge, right? This is not calling, hey, you church leaders, you know, you guys do this work. This is, this is a call to the entire congregation. Take ownership of this. And so what does that look like? Maybe it looks like a willingness to invite others to speak truth into your life, right? There's a lot of defense mechanisms that can come up. A lot of times someone starts speaking truth and the immediate response is, are you trying to judge me? Well, I think what I just read here, Paul says that that kind of applies in this situation, right? So, so maybe instead of pushing that out, Maybe maturity is a willingness to invite that. It's recognizing I need people to speak truth in love in my life. And what I've noticed is that when something's out of whack in my life, someone can be speaking truth in a loving way, but it doesn't sound loving. But doesn't mean it's not. And so if I'm in that place, you got to just be willing to receive it. So in the end, it's, it really comes down to individual choices and resolutions. So I want to close with just this, this challenge to just to invite you to just kind of draw a circle in your mind and just think about who is going to be in that circle of those whom I'm just not going to be a bystander. I, I'm not going to just sit back Um, You know, we cannot be responsible for everyone. We're not called to. But in your life, there are some people that you have influence on. Who's going to be in that circle? Give give yourself to them and say, I'm going to do everything I can. So not on my watch am I going to just sit back and watch them crash and burn their lives. I'm going to do everything I can to to live a no-compromise life and to help those around me live that same way, honor God, and see his purposes accomplished. It's a challenge, but it's a good one to take. Let's pray together.